Welcome everyone, Jonathan Trowan here. I am so excited today. We're here with Tim Kellis. He's the founder of The Marriage Solution, but here's the deal. We were gonna talk marriage and the solution to it, and we might do a whole nother podcast on that, but it's not what we're doing anymore because all of a sudden he says, he says, Jonathan, I, I got this talk I'm gonna do. Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't about this here, about the science of happiness. And I said, um, okay, well, if you're gonna do a, a talk about it, I think I wanna talk to you about it because I know happiness from like the body and the feeling perspective. And I work a lot with people from happiness, but the science of it. So Tim, welcome, school, school me on, on science. Jonathan, no worries at all. No worries at all. Exactly. Well, this is you and I are going to get into really the details. I'm going to actually what we're going to talk today is going to be sort of the conclusion of my whole message. The beginning of this is I've solved the marriage problem. It's based on equality. You learn about becoming partners in a marriage. You learn to disagree, not to argue. You realize that in arguments, fear is the source of the anger. You address the fear. You heal through forgiveness and you're able to become an objective marriage. That is just so you know, I just summarized two hours in about 10 seconds there. But in fact, what I want to do is before you start recording, you started talking about you want somebody to map in the brain happiness, right? So do you want to do you want to go back to that point of our conversation? Yeah. So 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 Tim and I were just talking before and and I so I mentioned to Tim that I am looking for a neuroscientist, which I am not, um, to map the brain in terms of emotions and what chemicals are released with the different emotions we have. And then, and then Tim started going off and I said, whoa, 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 stop, we gotta record. So, all right, so go, map, map me the brain on happiness. No, 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 this okay. is, let, me, let me explain you to you that. what you just said without realizing it, <clears throat> okay? The foundation of the psychology industry. This is um, now. Now I have a Wall. I was the first semiconductor analyst on Wall Street to focus in the communications market. It's very successful career. Very analytical engineering undergrad. And I met this girl. I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And the bottom line is, we fell in love. And the girl I'd known for a while. I'm, I'm making this real short as well. But we started fighting and then we went to a therapist. And when I realized the therapist wasn't helping is when I decided to take on this role. I have a lot of emotional background that's motivated me to do this. So when I studied, I spent to almost two years researching and writing my book, hundred books went into the research. I basically studied the psychology industry. What a wall street analyst does, is they become an expert in an industry. So I have studied the psychology industry from an analytical perspective. So this is, you gotta understand there's the back, that background with what I'm about to talk to you about because I'm gonna discuss all of this with you very analytically. So the foundation of the psychology industry is the biology conclusion. This was one of the most amazing things for me to discover. And what that means is that you and I are nothing but animals, that we are incapable of thinking, incapable of making a decision, changing our minds, that our brain controls our minds. In fact, one of my books that I discovered, this is actually the smoking gun of the psychology industry. What it finally does is it finally proves that the mind controls the brain. It's called The Mind and the Brain. It was published in 2002. 
And just so you know, as a sidebar, the industry has is, is just basically ignored this book because this book changes the entire direction of the industry. Because, In fact, the front jacket, the very first thing it says in the inside of the jacket, conventional science has long held the position that the mind is a reaction to the chemicals in the brain. This is why from marriage therapy, for example, why you get behavioral advice. Because they're looking at you like you're a dog that they're going to train to, to lay down and to roll over when they give you behavioral advice because you're not a human being. You're actually an animal. This is, this is, the, this is, this is why the industry deals with feelings and why there's no logical solution yet to the marriage problem, which is what I'm doing. Okay, okay so... So it's, we're being controlled by, our brains are controlling things and we need to change our behaviors to control the brain. That's current philosophy. The, well, no, the philosophy is that your brain causes your mind. So if you change your body, you're going to change your mind. This is why you get like diet advice. I, I, seen, I, I see a psychiatrist on, uh, on PBS on Sundays every once in a while. His name is uh, Daniel Amen. And he's talking about how he can lower depression through your diet. Mm -hmm. all right so that's 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 neuroscientists they study the brain with this really very shallow logic that by understanding the brain there's going to know what goes on in the mind what you and i are about to discuss is the mind i'm about to explain to you how the mind works i love it okay school me this is the first time that you have heard this this is the first time that anybody has heard this this is my discovery. This is what I have discovered that nobody else has discovered yet. In fact, this is one of the things I want to be known for. Okay. The backdrop of this conversation, though, is Carl Jung. I think you and I talked about in some of our mentor studio meetings, Carl Jung. And for anybody who is listening to this who doesn't know who Carl Jung is, Carl Jung was 19 years younger than Freud. Freud looked up the young so much that he considered him not only his error, his son, his error parent, but his son. This is the, how close these two got. And they had their famous professional breakup in 1912. Freud, obviously, we know, has, has this is where the biology theory comes from, is Freud's sexuality theory. We no longer believe that I want to have sex with my mom, but that's actually the foundation of the industry, the Oedipus complex. And we yes, all know so, that. So why do we all know Freud? But, but I mean, I know who Carl Jung is now, but I didn't learn about Carl Jung. So why do we all know Freud and not Carl Jung? Because sex sells. Ah, and Freud spoke about sex, Carl Jung didn't. Exactly. Carl Jung discovered how the mind works. And I'm taking it one step further with what I'm going to explain to you today. All right. Not only that, he's just explaining the unconscious, which is the critical point. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to put together a blueprint for you and how your mind works. And when you understand this, you'll understand the significance of this in the advancement of the psychology industry. When the industry understands what I'm about to explain to you, they know it finally gives a vision for therapy. It finally explains the goal of therapy. Okay, so that's the backdrop of the conversation. And you know when I get to the, to the Carl Jung part. So... So I'm going to lead you to, a, a, to the top of the mountain, but I need to start off at the base with, with fundamentals. Real, This is kind of boring stuff, the beginning of this, but I'm going to explain to you the, the structure of the brain and the mind as an analogy to the computer. 
All right. Okay. So we know that in the computer, when you understand how it works, there's basically the hard drive, which is where all the programs exist. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then there's local memory called DRAM or dynamic random access memory. Okay. And when you actually open up a file, when you double click on that file, what you're doing is you're bringing the file from the hard drive and you're actually loading it into in a local memory. That's how it works. Yep. Okay. And so obviously the analogy is to, is to consciousness. So when you pull that program from the hard drive into local memory, you're actually doing, you're pulling it from the unconscious down to consciousness. So That's hard drive doing. is unconscious, is unconscious. And then we bring it in, in. So, well, let me ask you this. Is the unconscious and subconscious the same or are they different? Yes. Yes. Same thing. Same thing. Okay. It's just subconscious because, because of Freud's biology theory and nobody actually discussing the unconscious, it's kind of, uh, it's a it's a forgotten focus of the industry. So now they kind of they have this in between subconscious. If if you think about it, logically conveys between consciousness and unconscious. But the reality is, is all they're saying is you're either unaware of it, or you're aware of it. <laughs> yep, I get it. When you're unaware of it, it's in the unconscious. But the point, so so the point is, is for consciousness, we know we have two components to awareness: our thoughts and feelings. Right, our thoughts and feelings, We're, and beliefs. Right? No, no, no. Just thoughts and feelings. Okay. Your experiences, your awareness of something when it happens to you, consciously, you're thinking it and Got feeling it. it. Yes. Remember, Got consciousness it. is a stream of river. That's the way that uh, I think it's William James describes consciousness is like this flow of a river. It's a stream. It's a process. It's 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 like the ticker of you know the the ticker just constantly going yes. through your mind. Right. It's yep. you're, you're, you're aware of something. Go, go, go. Okay, yep. exactly. But where your thoughts, where your 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 knowledge of things come from, which is what's in the unconscious, it's the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's it's in so there's two components to the unconscious. The first is obvious, your personal unconscious. That's that's what that's what we all know about. We, it, just logically, if you think about it. You know, what did you do as a kid? Oh, I played baseball. I did this and that. I mean, you have all of these experiences that go upstairs into your library. But it's the second component that gives the awareness. Now, let me, it's, he, Carl Jung called it the collective unconscious. And if you're familiar with Carl Jung, you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. Let me describe just, just now I'm going to get technical and I'm, I'm bringing all this around so that everybody can understand it. But Technically speaking, the collective unconscious is an aggregation of archetypes. And archetypes are patterns of thought or symbolic imagery from the collective past. That's that concept of the collective past. This is when the conversation gets really deep. So let me give you one example. In my opinion, the most significant thing that Carl Jung discovered. What, what's important to understand about this conversation is philosophers for thousands of years have been trying to figure out how to think. That's what philosophy is. Philosophy is the logic of thought. You know, why are we here? And then psychology from a philosophical perspective is taking it over to mean why do we behave? But it's not until Freud and Jung, remember both Freud and Jung, both independent of each other, started studying dreams. Mm -hmm. And remember, dreams are proof of the unconscious. This is one of the questions that Carl Jung asks. He goes, where does that voice come from? Think about that. 
Where does that voice that give you dreams come from? This was the curiosity that drove him his entire professional career, was trying to answer that question. So what he realized is he realized that there were myths like the snake, for example. That's a, that's a great one. I won't discuss that. It's important. It's unimportant. But we know that snakes, there's a mythological component to the snakes. You know, anybody's ever st studied myths. And so they'll show up in dreams. And he's trying to figure out what, why was the snake in the dream? What is the message with these myths? What are these myths trying to teach us? Okay. In fact, one of the reasons just the sex answer with Freud is one answer. But to be honest with you, when you psychoanalyze Jung, you also realize that Jung, one of the things that Jung did was he not only psychoanalyzed Christianity, but he psychoanalyzed Christianity in the context of other religions, and you're not allowed to do that. Hmm. Okay, that's he's he got in trouble with the Catholic Church for he psychoanalyzes Jesus. <laughs> I love that. Okay, so, so where so, did that where do the archetypes come into play? Like in, in terms me, of my archetype and the collective archetype. So let me let me give you let me give you the biggest example. So a little history lesson here, but he first started studying the Gnostics, okay? The second most significant event in the history of Christianity was 325 AD when Constantine the Great at the Council of Nicaea standardized on the Bible. And one of the things that he did was he removed Gnosticism from the ideology. Gnosticism was the spiritual component of Christianity. Gnosticism was the Kabbalah equivalent. Kabbalah is the spiritual component of Judaism. Gnosticism was the spiritual component of Christianity. So let me give you an example. They believed that Jesus took zero material form. Actually, they debated that. How spiritual and how material was Jesus? And the Gnostics promoted the fact that he never took any material form. And what they decided on was, Father, spiritual, son, material, Holy Ghost, spiritual. So basically two-thirds spiritual, one-third material. That's the way the Catholic Church standardized on it. So the mess, that's why it's called being agnostic when you don't know. It's a dig by the Catholic Church on the Gnostics. Hmm. So Carl Jung started studying Gnosticism, and he became confused because they were so antique. In, in, in antiquity, they were so old, the messages until he discovered when he had a dream where he was a knight in the Middle Ages. And he also realized the Middle Ages was the search for the Holy Grail, and he started studying what I refer to as the spiritual alchemist. He called, them the, he called it the philosopher's stone. We view alchemy as the base material into gold. Material. We, again, this is this is the foundation of the Freud biology theory. Just so you know, there's a, a long history of Freud's biology theory. He didn't make it up. This is the foundation, the, 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 base, the materialistic view versus the spiritual view. That's actually been a philosophical debate that's been going on for thousands of years. And so what I'm explaining to you is Jung discovered the spiritual alchemist. They tried to convert spiritually. And he, he connected the dots through all of this to the modern mind in what he referred to as spiritual transformation. And let me, one of my concluding points is what that is. Okay, again, this is one of my bringing down the earth. 
the only reason why I can comfortably and confidently tell anybody that I have solved the marriage problem is because I forgave my parents when I was 25 years old. Mm. It turns out we are supposed to be born twice. The first is obvious biologically, but the second is when we're supposed to be born psychologically into adulthood. The Bart Mitzvah and the Bat Mitzvah in the Jewish tradition, the First Communion in the Christian tradition. I'm in South Florida, so in the Latino world, it's Quincenero, uh, barbaric rituals in antiquity. We're all initiation ceremonies into adulthood. That's what they're supposed to be doing, separating from your childhood. And we know there's stories in the Bible about, you know, leaving from the parent from their parents. But psychologically, what happens is we now that we're more advanced and we're more aware of ourselves, we now reflect and are more aware of our, our, our childhood effect on us as adults. But the psychology industry hasn't figured that out yet. This is one of the things I'm doing. Because the reality is, is we're supposed to psychologically disconnect from those negative bonds from our childhood to start the maturity process into adulthood. So you're saying now that we're, we're because even though we have these rituals, Quinceanera, Bar Bat Mitzvah, all that, we still have the rituals, but but we're still with our parents long after those, those rituals. So they they're too young. The rituals are too young. That's the point. They have not kept up. We don't really mature to, get, to become ourselves until we're like in our 20s, we get our career started. We have some notion of what we want to do for a living. I mean, we're, start, that we're starting to answer these basic questions of the modern mind on how, because remember, this is all has to do with individuality. So how in, do we get so, to individuality? So when you were 25 and you forgave your parents, was that really your, in my world, your bar mitzvah? Absolutely. It was, it, was, it was the most significant day of my life. And remember, I took that freedom all the way to Wall Street. You so have I to want understand. to know about that day. I want to get into all this other stuff, but I want to know what that day. You're 25. How do you know you need to forgive? How do you, like, what, what happened? Take me to the, I want to know this day. Or that, if there's this, something leading up to it, what happened? No, no, no. It's a conversation. This, this is this is what therapists are supposed to be doing. This is what therapists are supposed to be doing. But but how it happened to me, this is the objective is to help the, the person forgive their parents. This is the notion of development. The younger you are, the less developed you are. Where do you least develop at birth? Your parents, your influence. I mean, it's amazing that they've not get their got their head around it, at least to tell the public yet about the effect of your childhood on your on your adulthood. So the point is. Is I, and now my dad was a cab driver, so I was raised poor. I became friends in college with a guy whose father started the largest law firm in Dallas, Texas. So he grew up wealthy. Okay, it was a conversation that he and I had where we were comparing our childhood and we were one, trying to one up each other on who had the worst childhood. But the point with Kent is Kent had gone to a good therapist where he had forgiven his dad. His dad was a very powerful, one of the wealthiest people in Dallas, Texas. Knew all, he you know, hung out with all of the royalty of Dallas. This is his upbringing. Think about that personally as a father, though. And so what I'm about to tell you, he had forgiven his father. So every time I try and say something that my parents did to destroy my childhood, he'd one-up me, but then he would end by saying, but I still love my dad. Yeah, but you don't understand. 
you know, my parents did this and that to me. And he goes, but my dad sent me to military school, but I still love him. Yeah, but you don't understand. My parents did this to me. Yeah, but my dad never showed me any affection. His dad was an attorney. Attorneys have no affection. They save it for the, for the jury, right? Yet I still love him. And then I would say something else that my parents did. And then this is the one that got me. This is the one that turned, turned it over. He, told, he, he said that my, his dad never went to any of his events because he was always working. Now, let me tell you a little bit about my dad. My dad, if you ask him, no longer here, okay? But if you were to ask him about his life, he would tell you two things. Playing football for the Air Force in the 50s and his kids. We grew up on sports. I've been playing soccer since I was five years old. I played in college. My dad gave up a football scholarship, though, to play football for Ohio State because he was the oldest boy of 15. He couldn't leave his family because he had to be there to help raise all of his siblings. That's family and sports. My dad never missed any of my events. I'll never forget one of my soccer games from the field all the way to the parking lot. My dad walking shoulder to shoulder next to the referee yelling at the referee for a bad call he made on his son. This is the way my dad loved seeing his kids play sports. I realized I was wrong in all the anger that I built up towards my parents. I looked at it from my parents' perspective. I understood it. This is the maturing process also starts when you look at things from the other person's perspective. Very important thing that I teach because that this is where I learned this. And guess what I realized? They did a pretty good job. Right? I'm not a bad guy. Not in prison. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a more, I'm a, my parents did a good job with me and that's their job. Your job is to get your kids a moral compass and then let them off in the world. Hopefully, you know, and then I did good well in grades. I mean, they didn't have to worry about me, you know, being homeless or anything like that. So the point is, is so, I had an awakening. So was the forgiveness the awakening and recognizing that indeed they did a good job or was there something else that was a, a part of it? Just that recognition, taking their perspective, switching Bingo. from me to them, right? Bingo. Sitting on them, their shoes. Oh, not perfect, but good job given all the information that I have. Bingo. Exactly. In but here's the point. For people to do what I just described, here's the issue, though. Enlightenment comes at a price. You have to give up your limitations. Mm. You want to stay down in that world, I'm not good enough, and I can you know, just survive, and I'm not going to do anything with my life and I'm a worthless human being, God disagrees with you, by the way. I will tell you that God does not agree with that, that thought process. In fact, when you understand what I'm about to explain to you, that's what you're actually battling. You're battling God when you're saying I'm not good enough. In fact, so let me go on to that. So the point about this, the point about all of this is there are, there is a, it's, to be honest with you, all I'm describing is your moral compass as an unconscious motivation there's a reason why we learn about things, whatever they are, whatever they are. There are messages that have been in training throughout the history of civilization to teach us how we are supposed to behave. There's a huge, huge religious component to your moral compass, huge religious component, the most significant. It's not it's not a monopoly, by the way. OK, 
Let me give you an example of an archetype that is about to be described to you for the first time as well is a changing archetype. I also have been the first person to introduce the notion of prejudice into the psychology industry. It's important to understand that we used to promote prejudices. It was a good thing. You and I are white guys. So either, remember, they're women. Women don't vote. Women are second-class citizens. We want to talk about racial. You got to understand wars between governments and religions for thousands of years have been based on what? Us versus them. How do you think we come up with this notion of different gods? Where does that come from for Pete's sake, right? This is the way that we have been. My dad, I, I grew up with the N-word, quite honestly. My, and I used to yell at my dad. You can't say that. Yeah, I can't. I mean, he was taught the N-word, the J-word. You know, my dad was taught like everybody else in on the planet that there's us versus them. How I, I psychoanalyze Hitler in my book. How do you think Hitler got away with it? He, number one, he did not invent anti-Semitism. Yeah. Exactly. You laugh because you know my point. Who invented anti-Semitism? You know they actually built the first ghetto within sight of the Pope in the Vatican? The first ghetto that. ever was built in the 16th century and was built so that the Pope could see it. Hmm. The Catholic Church, This, this, the, the notion of the... the the Jew, the Jew uh, conspiracy was something that existed in the in the unconscious of the German people, and he tapped into that. That's all he did. That's that's how he that's how he got away with what he did. But the point is, is there's an there's an influence on us unconscious. Okay, so now let's get back to Earth. Okay, now I'm going to bring it back down to Earth. Now we're going to bring all of this that I just talked about, and we're going to put it into practice. Because all I just explained to you, and this is my bridge to the masses now so that everybody can understand, is that the collective unconscious is nothing more than common sense. Okay? So let me explain to you what I mean by that. It turns out that we have two voices in our head. Now remember, in order to talk, you have to be able to hear. You can't have a conversation unless there's more than one person. And that's the same thing that goes on in your head. So one of your voices is your personal voice and the other is common sense. So if you're going down the highway at 90 miles an hour, think about that conversation. One of your voices saying, I'm late for work. That's your personal voice. The other voice is saying, yeah, but, this, but we're speeding. Okay, I have answered a question that has been debated for thousands of years, and let me give you the answer. The debate has been the difference between, is, is, is it's God's will or free will? God's will is referred to as predestination, which means everything's been predetermined for us. Free will, on the other hand, is the ability, as we know in the modern world, now that we're educated, is the ability to think and make decisions. The answer is both of them. I have the free will to believe in God's will. I can do, Jonathan, I can do anything I want to right now. I, am, I can do whatever I want to as long as I don't break the rules. 
If I leave this podcast and I drive down to the local bank and I rob it, what happens to my free will? It goes away. As long as I go by the rules. Okay. So, so the point I'm making here, number one, think about this. In fact, this don't do this, by the way. Anybody listens, I'm saying don't do this. The stop sign is an archetype. Think about what would happen if you were the next time you see a stop sign, don't stop. Run through that stop sign. Think about the anxiety as you're looking around, looking for the light, the sirens to go off behind you, right? You're now, you have an angst, you have a knot in your stomach. Okay. The knot in your stomach is the result of the conflict between your personal unconscious and common sense or the collective unconscious. Say you were molested as a child. Now we're talking about the behavior to you because you have to understand psychologically what happens when something happens to you that you are unhappy with? You were molested as a child, for example. Think about the, I just got done working with a woman who was molested when she was 11 years old. Think about the life that she has lived since she was 11 years old. Think about the dialogue between the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious. All depression, all Suicide, all of, of crimes, all of our mental problems are result when our personal and our common sense are at odds with each other. So Have is ever- it that is so so there's the personal conscious unconsciousness and the collective unconsciousness. It's those two so voices. Is it sometimes are we always hearing the voice of the collective unconscious yes. or is yes. sometimes yes. our personal yes. conscious is yes. so powerful we can't, we can't that, hear that? That's the debate. When, when crime happens is when the personal wins the battle. You and, I are ba- you and I are having an argument right now, Jonathan. You have your side, I have my side. Which one of us wins? If I win, then you're going to do what you're told. If you win, I'm going to do what I'm told. <clears throat> so it's not that it goes away. It's to the, it's the, say the personal unconscious flips the birdie at the collective so so we have the per we have the personal and we're saying no to the collective we understand that there's the collective we're saying no to it and that's where these these difficult emotions arise you know that you're not supposed to rob a bank but rent is due this month your wife is nine and a half months pregnant and you have no money People, when they rob a bank, they know they're doing wrong. Why do they wear masks? But how did, because most people aren't, aren't robbing the bank, but how does it play you, to you the You know, it's an analogy. Sure. Come on, John. No, I you do, know but, but I want to bring it to analogy. something real. So, because you brought up something real and not everybody was molested, but everyone's had some sort of trauma that they've dealt with, right? right? Every, everyone's got something. So, exactly. so for that person who's living with whatever trauma they they're living with and therefore is feeling these feelings of depression of sadness of whatever it is because the trauma hasn't been addressed how is how is that playing out with the with the collective unconscious so your parents got divorced when you were a kid think about it that way okay okay true story for now me. got it what true story for me so i'm there with okay. you but the point is good so you can relate to this mm-hmm. okay but but bear in mind before the 60s 
This is this is one of the things that I'm going to this is actually the thing I'm actually going to be fighting because my job is to lower the divorce rate, just so you know. Love but it. before this. What? I, I love that. That's a huge mission. I love it. Exactly. But before the 60s. If you got divorced. You were chastised culturally. OK, the culture, common sense, society based on the church motivation, which this is one of the great things I agree with the church, was to frown on divorce. But in the 60s, in 1970, less than 1% of all law and medical degrees went to women. By 1990, that number was over half. Women are no longer going to sit back and be subordinate to their husbands. That's The solution is equality. We just haven't figured that out yet. But the change, the cultural change, is the education of women. I mean that from a positive perspective. Don't anybody listen to this and say, I'm trying to be misogynistic. I'm promoting women education. Okay, nobody's going to, please, hear what I said. So the it's solution is divorce. The solution is equality. The solution is equality. But it's, so this is, the, this is the transition. We're going from the man being in charge to nobody being in charge. This is what we're trying to figure out. So today, it's no longer socially looked down upon if you were to get divorced. But you know, Jonathan the psychological impact that that has had on you, that you've lived through these two people that you you love, that, that raised you, that they divorced each other. If you, there's always, the, one of the most interesting things about children divorced parents is every time I ask somebody about their childhood and their parents were divorced, their first thing that they'll say was that my parents got divorced when I was this year's old, not, I did this in school, I did this and this, I did this. My, this is the defining moment of a child's life is when their parents got divorced. My parents, my mom left my dad for like a week. That was it. And she came back. But I, I'll never forget the, the knot in my stomach that mom and dad were getting divorced. They didn't. They got back and it was great. And they, they you know, my dad, mom stayed. My mom has a boyfriend now and my dad's no longer around. It's funniest thing in the world, but, but so my parents stayed married, but I do have that one experience in that one week of my childhood of the, whenever my mom would walk in the house, we were like rat, like, like uh, 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 rats with the lights going on. We were scattering to the bedrooms. We just ignored my mom and my mom was, she was giving up on the family. So all of us just were like, and my mom came back. I mean, this is the point is my parents did not give up. One of the things that, that, divorced parents teach their kids is is they quit now the way the kids respond to that is their decision but some people take their parents uh divorce is is, a, is an approval to quit in life as a what an approval to quit ah yes in life got it you, dude is your life been straight and forward and simple and easy or has <laughs> there been challenges you kidding me oh my goodness we all have that yeah, that was what was fascinating about my career is my career went on a skyrocket. My career skyrocketed to Wall Street. There was a, there was a, a, a nine year journey that led me to Wall Street. And I, I had smooth sailing, except the woman and my great friends making a lot of money, traveling all the time. I had this unbelievable life that I created. And then at the end of this, the peak of this is when I met this girl. And then then my life. So, so yeah, so what made you switch from this successful Wall Street career to studying marriage and happiness? This relationship. That was the core. 
actually more significantly though, when the therapist did not address the background issues in therapy. I have a transcript of my last therapy session where the therapist asked me six times the how does it make you feel question, which is called cognitive behavioral therapy, refused, absolutely refused to address any background issues. Never went there. We, we just wouldn't, I would just, you know, I'm begging this guy. This guy had me on this panic phone call twice where I was having a, a panic attack because I was trying to open his eyes. I couldn't get her to see this. I forgave my parents. Just To me, this is the journey I've been on. I didn't realize how that would revolutionize the psychology industry. I thought we all do that. I went through that. I didn't realize that that is not part of, this is why I'm here. Because my this this guy, I'm like, just I did it. Look what it did to me. Get her to go do that. Yeah, but she's got to do that. You you can't do it. I can't do it. She's got. She's the one. She, Freud or Young calls them shadows. This is this is the problem I have with the psychology industry. It's so passive that they're passively waiting for the person to awaken up instead of them guiding it. Carl Jung cured people in as little as two or three sessions. This notion of going to therapy for years just it blows my mind that nobody's ever come out and discussed that. It's just unbelievable that the psychology industry can, and I know people realize I've got I've got a very good friend of mine who realizes she's paying this girl to be a friend. My friend's already forgiven her parents. Her therapist keeps telling you don't need to come to any longer, but she's doing it for other reasons because she's already done that. But uh, but not everybody is that aware of what therapy is all about. Therapy is about taking advantage of vulnerable people. And again, I'm sorry so, about that extreme concept. So what, so what should we be doing now? We, we've had these traumas. We know there's this science behind happiness. You're telling us that what, what's recognized as science behind happiness is, is not what it really is because we're dealing with the collective conscious. So, so we're dealing with it mentally. So here's what, the point. Yeah. So let me, let, so let me, let me <laughs> explain to you forgiveness. <laughs> So this is one of the more interesting aspects of my story. This is a mentor of mine. His name is Dr. Michael Rice. His last name is spelled R-Y-C. In fact, he's written a book called Why Is This Happening to Me Again? If I'm in 80 relationships with 40 different women, what's the common denominator? Me, I mean, that whole thing. But this guy is actually translating the oldest Bible in existence that was written in Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. He didn't speak English. In fact, when you realize this, this, this is another thing. I got to be careful this way, too, because if you go study the history of the, of the church, you could get yourself in trouble. But, but there, there's been translations from Aramaic to Greek to Latin to the modern languages. That's the translational steps. And every time there's a translation, there's a translation. There's a change of the meanings. I think it's uh, um, Stalin that once said, if you want to define a culture, you define their language. If you want to control a culture, you define their language. And that's one of the things that happened during these translations. And so, for example, this is you go to this guy's website, he actually has the original Jesus saying for the Beatitudes. Jesus did not say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus was a philosopher, and he's got the original saying of what Jesus actually said, which he would be, he would be a published Hay House author today. That's how spiritual his words are. If you actually go read the real words, but, but for forgiveness, when they translated forgiveness from Aramaic to Greek, they translated it to me to pardon. 
So if I do something wrong with, to Jonathan, Jonathan pardons me when he forgives me or he lets me off the hook. The problem is the anxiety still exists. Mm. Okay, you're still mad at me. You just said, I'm going to let this logically. Forgiveness is not a logical endeavor. Forgiveness is an emotional endeavor. Yeah. What Jesus literally said, though, was that forgiveness means to cancel. So when I forgave my parents, I basically hit the delete button on that program. Mm. I canceled all of, I have no negative feelings towards my parents. They don't exist. There's, my, I love my parents, right? I mean, you know, I speak to my dad now more than I did when he was alive. You know, I love my parents. You know, they're good people. They're simple. They've never made any money. And they got, you know, they, they're like everybody else in the world. They got their issues as well. But, that, but I don't have any negative feelings toward them. And so the point is, depression, suicide, uh, crime, all that is when the collective unconscious and the personal conscious are at odds with each other. Have you ever heard of the band Creed? Sure. Okay. Scott Stapp used to live about five miles from me. He actually, he, he actually, I got him a copy of my book, spoke to him on the phone once. He's the lead singer. He's the guy that wrote all the songs. And so Scott Stapp is a local guy. He lives in Tennessee with his wife now. His wife was Miss New York. But the point is, is Scott Stapp and his wife have gotten, they've broken up and gotten back together again, I think at least twice. <laughs> Tell me a rock star that you know of that reconciles with his wife. And the thing, if, if, you, if anybody doesn't know who Creed is, they were first labeled a Christian band, but now we realize they're a spiritual band. You know, one of one of his songs is called uh, My Own Prison. He talks about the imprisonment of ourselves in our mind. But but the point is, is there's a song called My Sacrifice. And it starts off, hello, my friend, we meet again. Where do we begin? It's been a long time. Where do we begin? It's called My Sacrifice. He's becoming friends with himself. I don't argue with myself. I had this talk last week on my clubhouse room, and somebody asked me, well, you, how are you, Tim? I don't argue with myself. I and, and, and I'm not any different anybody else who's aware. I don't think you probably, Jonathan. You know, you you and I got to know each other for for a while now, and I get a sense you're a you know calm guy. It's, I'm not saying anything that I've discovered. I'm just describing that I don't argue with myself. I get I'm happy with myself. I, I'm not there yet. I, I still argue with myself. I just recognize it, and then I choose which side I I, I want to hang out with. But, uh, awareness is the first step. Awareness is the first step on the journey. That's the whole point. Once yeah. you become aware of it, the goal is to make conscious what is unconscious or else it appears as fate. That's one of Carl Jung's most famous quotes. So how, do, so how do we make how do we make the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious? How do we bring that to consciousness so we can have that awareness and then I'm assuming be happy or at least make the right decisions that that will allow happiness to be there with us? Well, believe it or not, the way I describe this in my marriage help is to have an argument. Hmm. Okay, but you have to understand what you're doing when you have that argument. Remember, love, love is vulnerability. Vulnerability is the fear of getting hurt. When you find something you're going to spend the rest of your life with, you get over that wall. At the beginning, it's called the, the, the false facade in the psychology world, but you're putting your best foot forward as you should be. But what couples need to learn is they need to learn to be able to expose those things about them that they're not so comfortable with. Because you'll find out the cause of the anger is the fear of something that happened to you from your childhood. So when when you because the point is, is, is you said at the very beginning of this conversation, how do you bring down what for unconscious? You have to have a trigger event. 
how do you why do you why do you why do you pull up Microsoft Word because I have to write a document? Okay, this is this is awareness. This is now you want to get into the quantum physics and the collapse of the sine wave to describe consciousness, but consciousness is nothing but an awareness. It's when uh, the thing that, that that Einstein discovered is that energy exists in particle and waveform at the same time. So our, you know, everything's in energy. Everything's in, but 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 there's a, there's awareness. There's an there's a, there's a potential awareness in our unconscious, which is you know you 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 walk by a bike store and you used to ride bikes when you were a kid. All you're doing is you're looking at the bike and that bike is bringing down all those memories from child. You need to have a trigger event. That's that's called consciousness. That's awareness. So the, the trigger. So the triggers are are there for us to bring unconsciousness to consciousness. Yeah, that's the point. So how do we unite that? Because that brings up personal unconsciousness, right? To personal consciousness. How do we unite that with the collective? By forgiving your parents. By forgiving your parents. Wow. That's huge. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's industry changing. It's industry revolutionizing. This is what I'm talking about. This is, this is uh, Carl Jung psychoanalyzes Jesus. And one of the things he says is if you don't understand Jesus in the time that he lived, he becomes irrelevant. Jesus was the counter to the Caesar, okay? So one of the things Carl Jung also talks about is that we go through 2,000-year ages, okay? The old age was the Pisces, which obviously represent the fish are eating. Jesus was the fisherman. But I also discovered in Wikipedia that, that Pisces also represents the sword. So wars, battles of governments and religions. We're now at the age of Aquarius. Aquarius is the water bearer. Okay, love is like a drop in the water or a drop in the ocean. Okay, we are all energy. This is what Einstein called quantum physics the language of God. But we are. This is why the Mayan calendar uh, expired in the year 2000 timeframe. Is we got through the Pisces and now we're at a new age, and that new age is the age of spirituality. But we're at the very beginning of this. That's gonna. We got two thousand year journey before we figure this out. Just so you know. Oh but man! Insane, oh man! Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm a part of the journey. I, I I have to recognize and be kind to that part that part of me that wants uh, that that two thousand years to go a little bit more quickly. Wow. Well, no, it goes to your children. When you learn this, this is what we're doing: is we're breaking the psychological genetic for lack of a better word it's a psychological transfer it's not a biological transfer but there's a psychological transfer of these shadows from generation to generation and it, it, at some point you have to wake up and to break the chain that's what i'm doing with my life is i'm breaking the chain and again my parents weren't bad people they're angry they did, did all the stuff that they, you know whatever but i'm breaking that chain so i don't give that to my son i have a 16 year old son so i know that i'm not giving that to him with the way I'm breaking that chain with him. This is such powerful stuff. I wish I could talk to you for another hour. There, there is so, so much uh, in there. Um, well, first, uh, people that want to know more about you, where, where, where do we go? It's Tim Kellis, my name, T-I-M-K-E-L-L-I-S, at Happy Relationships, plural, Happy Relationships, plural. Yes, I do own that domain name.com. Tim Kellis at happyrelationships.com. 
I also have on Facebook, it's called The Marriage Support Group. I actually have added over a thousand people in the last 30 days in my group. So it's actually been exploding and skyrocketing, but go to Facebook, search The Marriage Support Group, picture of a couple kissing. Every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Clubhouse, I sponsor a Clubhouse call. I just went through this conversation last Wednesday night as well. You know, it was the first time I'd actually discussed this sort of publicly. Um, so, uh, you know, people can join me there, but again, anybody from a marriage perspective, and I mean, I know happiness and everybody becoming more aware of what's going on, but also just, you know, my ultimate goal is to lower the divorce rate. So anybody from a relation perspective, uh, wants to take this, this psychology conversation is only part of the discussion. Then we get to know sociology of equality and all the great things that happen when you build your marriage base as a partnership on equality, but, you know, feel free to reach out to me, but. But Jonathan, again, you know, you know, dude, you and I are friends, and I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to speak on your on your podcast here. But you know, more importantly, I'm looking forward to you and I building uh, this momentum. The Minner Studio, you know, Michael Silvers love us talking about the Minner Studio. But you know, anybody wants to, you know, anybody has a message that they want to take out to the public, take out to the world, you know, be sure you start off by joining the Minner Studio, reach out to Michael Silvers. But that's how Jonathan and I yeah, have met. And that's where Tim and I know community. each other through the Mentor Studio. Great organization, connected us with so many wonderful people in there. And man, my mind is just personal co conscious, collective conscious to give your parents, merge them all. Um, I got some work cut out ahead of me. I am so grateful for you, Tim. Thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Again, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you know, you're giving me an opportunity to come and share because, you know, this is something I'm very passionate about. So, so happy to be able to share. And we will have a follow-up to this where we get into the real basics of marriage, by the way. There's going to be That's so much conversation. more. We're going to see Tim again on this podcast. Thank you, everybody, for watching, listening, like, leave a review, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. And, and if you found something helpful, um, which I think in this one, there really was some, some helpful stuff in here, you know, share it with someone that could really use it. We'll see you all. I we will see you all next time. Much love to you all.